Hi, everyone. I'm Katie, if we haven't met. Welcome to Fusion. Oh, hi. Today we are ending our Nehemiah series. If you've been around, we've been moving through the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, and it has, we've spent like a good, a good long time here. There's a lot going on in this book. It's a super interesting story, and I'm going to kind of wrap it up and put a bow on it um, today. And then this summer, we've got a lot of just um, guest speakers coming, and we get to hear a lot of different just like stories and testimonies and from people that are inside and outside our body. And so that'll be really fun. I hope that you're here, you're here to see some of that, because that's going to be awesome. Um, but to, to end this little journey we've been on, uh, we are at, right now today, Nehemiah 12, moving into this chapter. Uh, and we have been kind of watching this man, Nehemiah, um, come to return to Jerusalem when he was uh, serving the king of Persia, came back to Jerusalem to start be rebuilding the wall after the Israelites were in exile. And he had it on his heart to rebuild the wall and set the temple to rights. And it's just this whole journey of like ups and downs and opposition and them making it happen. And they did the whole thing in a very short time, which was just such a God thing. And we're coming to the end here where they are dedicating the wall and the work that they've finished. Okay, so I'm, I'm moving over all that stuff. I don't have time to give you a whole review, but go read it if you don't remember. So they're dedicating the wall now. And there has been this reading of the word, there has been this celebration, there has been repentance, people just realizing, man, we kept turning away from God and we don't want to do that anymore, and we want to put God at the center of our lives. And um, they do this dedication by walking around the wall, completely around it, and ending at the temple to give sacrifices and praise to God with this huge worship celebration for what he has done. And Nehemiah kind of gets everybody kind of settled where they need to be. So he makes sure everybody has a job to do. Uh, many of the people were asked to stay in Jerusalem and live there. Uh, offerings were made by the people to be given to the Levites and the priests and the singers and the gatekeepers of the wall so that their families and them would be taken care of. Um, somewhere in here we find out later that Nehemiah had left to go back to work for the king of Persia, and um, everything looks really good, right? He kind of set everybody up with what their calling was, what their purpose was, said, you guys know what to do. We've read the word. You know what God's expectations are. Let's move forward in freedom and grace, living for, not living for Jesus. They don't know who that is yet. Living <laughs> for the one holy God, right? So chapter 12 ends, and it's just this beautiful picture, and the story wraps up, and it's like happy, happy ever after, except there's another chapter, and it's weird, okay? Things kind of fall apart. I, I would love if we just ended here, but things kind of fall apart in this end scene. So somewhere in here, we find out um, that Nehemiah decides to, to come back and um, see kind of how Jerusalem is doing. Over maybe 12 to 15 years, he decides to come back and kind of see what's going on. He asks for permission to return. And Eliashib, this priest that he has left in charge of the temple, got his buddy Tobiah in the temple. Now, I don't know if you remember Chael talking about this dude, but he was in opposition to this temple rebuilding the entire time, and he tried to kind of hinder Nehemiah's plans. And the priest has given Tobiah rooms um, in the temple itself, 
which was not cool. And this guy is using the, um, like the temple food and drink and sacrifices that had been set aside for the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers to take care of them and their families. He's using them for himself. So it's this like terrible, terrible thing. Nehemiah is upset. He, he throws him out and is like, you can't be doing this. And he finds out the house of God has not only been, people haven't been given what they need, but it's, the whole house has been neglected. Uh, people aren't honoring the Sabbath, so people are coming in and out, selling things, doing whatever they want on the Sabbath, not resting. Uh, the Israelites had married non-Israelites, which was a thing they had talked about. Don't marry anybody that is a foreigner. And this is a little, this is a little side note, um, that this was like written in the law, and the whole reason that this was a big, big deal, they talk about in verse 26 that Solomon, who was one of the greatest kings of Israel, the wisest king that Israel ever had, was still turned away from God because he surrounded himself by people who didn't follow him. And so that was kind of the main thing, the reason that God is like, don't marry non-Israelites. And Nehemiah is outraged. So, <laughs> sorry, this is just funny. So he's, he's mad. This is, he's like, this is what we're doing when we're handed over to, nations, to other nations in exile, right? Like, this is how you got into this space where we needed to rebuild all Jerusalem and the wall. Like, this is how you were taken to other nations in exile. You were disobeying God, and he gave you over because of your disobedience. And so Nehemiah sets about to make things right. He kicks Tobiah out, like I said. He puts other people in charge of the storehouses to make sure the people are fed and cared for. He closes the temple on the Sabbath and makes sure it's not going to be, nobody's going to be disturbing the temple on the Sabbath. Uh, he talks to the people um, who had married foreigners or had given their children away in marriage to people who were not Israelites. This is a little weird. We don't have to kind of brush over this. So Nehemiah um, chastises them. These people who married um, uh, non-Israelites, he beats them up. He pulls out their hair. Okay. Okay. So yeah, we'll talk later. No, I'm just kidding. So it's this really like extreme reaction that feels to us like, whoa, whoa, okay, okay, I get it, you're angry, right? And sometimes, then it goes on and Nehemiah's trying to set everything right and then he's like, okay, my hands are kind of off it and I'm gone. And the last line of Nehemiah is like, remember me with favor, God, like I tried. Like you can just see Nehemiah kind of like, I don't know, I tried. Like this is a mess, I don't know what to do. And so there's this just crazy disappointment at the end of this book. There's also this kind of lingering, I think, in us disappointment in like Nehemiah because he was this man of God and did all this wonderful things and had this incredible purpose and then he kind of freaks out on people even though it was not okay. It was against what they had promised to do. It wasn't okay what they had done, but his reaction is super extreme. I think on a side note, it's important for us when we read things like this, um, especially we see it a lot in the Old Testament. Sometimes God asks people to do really confusing things that do not feel right. And we have to wrestle with those things. We also need to pay really close attention. Did God tell Nehemiah to do these things? Or did Nehemiah do these things? I'm just going to leave it there. Okay? Because sometimes, we're all human, right? Maybe in what is seated in righteous anger, we react in a way that maybe God has not asked us to do. So that's one of the ways that I think we can kind of let this sit and reconcile what happened here um, and Nehemiah's reaction because it's like, okay, well, God didn't actually tell him to do that. 
So we kind of have to hold that intention, okay? Uh, but anyway, everything's a mess. So Nehemiah walks away. And then if you're reading in your Bible, it's like Esther begins. I don't know if anybody noticed. Esther starts right away. And it's like, okay, that was a weird story. That was super weird. Let's move on. I just won't read the last chapter of Nehemiah ever again. And we'll just talk about Esther in this beautiful little story. But here's the thing. If you look at the chronological order of the Old Testament, I don't know if you know this, but the Old Testament is not actually um, organized in chronological order. Nehemiah is one of the last books that we read before this kind of, some people call it like revelatory silence in scripture of like four to 500 years when we don't hear what God is doing. We don't hear what God is saying. We don't hear what the people of God are doing. And then the New Testament opens. So we have to keep that in mind. I just want to kind of keep that on our radar here that this isn't just like Nehemiah ends, weird, another story starts. This ends, Nehemiah goes back, tries to set things to right, goes back to work for the king, and it's just kind of like, what now? There's this weird static, this weird silence. Now, some people say that God didn't speak to his people for this long. We don't actually know. I don't know. When we come back into the New Testament, you can see that there are people, they start talking about uh, the coming of Jesus and the way that people were preparing for that. And God was preparing for Jesus to come. And so there's people who followed him. There were people that uh, were trying to remain faithful and trying to, um, you know, keep him at the center. And so it's like people were, were obviously in relationship with him. So I don't know. Like maybe God wasn't as silent as it looks like to us. But what we do know is that we don't have any knowledge of what happened in that time biblically, right? So it's this kind of in-between moment that God's people are just waiting. They're waiting for what? What are they waiting for? The Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. That's the promise, right? Everything fell apart with Nehemiah. Everything was not going right. People were still struggling. It's like, man, if we could just get the Messiah here, right? Then everything would be different. So they're living in this in-between space. And then in the New, Test the New Testament reopens, and some of what God's people, you know, some of God's people are still following him, and God chooses to reveal the coming of Jesus, and Jesus changes everything. So I'm just, again, if you have questions, I'm, I'm running through this real quick. So Jesus changes everything, right? That's the good news. Everything is different now because of what Jesus has done. He comes, he sacrifices himself, he pays the debt that we never could fully pay. A debt is satisfied, and now we have the gift of eternal life. Right? Done. Story's over. Except it's not, because things are still bad. <laughs> Here's the thing. Jesus' ultimate sacrifice was incredible, and like I said, it changed everything, but I don't know if you've noticed, but things are not perfect. We still are imperfect. We mess up. There is tons of brokenness and pain in the world. So what do we do with that? This static the people of God were sitting in right after the story of Nehemiah is similar to this, this in-between that we're in now. There's so much beauty and life available to us because of Jesus' sacrifice and the spirit of God that lives within our spirit, but it just still isn't enough yet, is it? 
We're still surrounded by pain and brokenness and injustice and perfection. We are still waiting. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're just living, waiting for the next thing? If any of us remembers being a child, that's like it. I remember, like, if I could just be a teenager, I can do the cool things that teenagers do, you know? And then I became a teenager, I was like, well, I mean, being a teenager is cool, but if I could, like, get to college, you know, then I have some freedom, and I can go do whatever I want, kind of. I was still too scared to do whatever I wanted, so. And then it was like, if I could be an adult, or I could move away, or if I could just, you know, have kids, then, like, that's going to be the thing. That's going to be the best thing. I'm, gonna, I'm going to have arrived. This is the moment I'm waiting for. And then those moments come, and they're wonderful, and they're beautiful, and they're exciting, but it's still like, we, then we just right away look forward to the next thing. It's like somehow still just not enough. Have you ever felt that way? Like you get to that thing you've waited for for forever, and it's like, okay, but, like, but now, if we could, I could get to that thing, that would be great. I feel that right now with vacation. We went away a couple weeks ago to Michigan, and it was great, beautiful. On our way home, I'm like, man, I can't wait till we go to Colorado. We're going to go do a trip. Like, what? I couldn't even, like, finish celebrating the time on vacation until I was ready for another vacation. It's kind of in our DNA that nothing quite satisfies as much as we think it will. See, Nehemiah just wanted to get the walls rebuilt and the temple set to right. Then everything would be as it should be while they waited for the Messiah. But even that didn't last. We have these moments in our spiritual lives that are wonderful and meaningful. Maybe the moment we decided to follow Jesus or the time God answered a big prayer or a time we experienced the Holy Spirit in a new way. But they just don't quite scratch the itch, right? We need a little bit more. There is a greater beauty, a perfect time, a perfect earth that we will see someday. And so my challenge for you today, as we finish up this series and move into the rest of our summer, was that we, is that we would rise up and we would build and that we will hope for what will be. In Isaiah 65, it says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. That sounds good. That sounds really good. Guys, we are in the middle of a story. We are in the middle of it. Revelation 21 says, I heard a shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with him, them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Ooh, that feels like that's going to do it for us, guys, right? Everything that falls short a little bit, everything that's like it's not quite what it should be, this is what we're waiting for. This is why nothing quite satisfies. I think sometimes we live lives as believers going, the thing that defines us is that Jesus came 
and he was our savior and he died and took on all our sin and now we can live with him here on earth. But that's not it, right? That can't be it. That's not the only thing that defines us. We have a greater hope that there will be a new heaven and a new earth made. Things will be set perfectly right. This entire series, we've all been in and out of this idea of the right now and what is to come and the here and the there and the present and the promise. And the question is, how do we live intentionally for a kingdom that has not been fully realized on earth? What does that look like? We have no hope of ushering in a kingdom that we are not internally anchored in. Have you ever heard the term too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? I used to hear this when I was young. I don't hear it much anymore. But it's this idea that people would kind of, it was kind of a cultural commentary on Christianity at the time. And it was this idea that, that some Christians are just so focused on heaven and like getting there and just like being with Jesus that they're not even paying attention to how they can like bring the kingdom to earth right now the way that God wants to partner with us and actually like do miracles through us, heal through us, actually like work right now. And so there was this pendulum shift to where people were really focused on the right now. But we've swung a little too far. And I'm just not sure, this is true for me, that we give enough weight now to eternity and the hope that we have for what will come. See, Jesus did both. He lived knowing what was coming, knowing what he would usher in one day, but still just right now I'm going to do what my father is doing. Right now I'm going to do with my, what my father is doing. He held both intention. He wasn't just apathetic to the world while he was here, but he also had a greater steadfast hope and understanding. So as we've talked about the last several weeks, we, we work, we find our purpose while we're here, we party and we celebrate what God has done, we repent and admit our deep need for Jesus, and I think we rest. I'm not talking about Sabbath rest. I'm talking about a rested spirits, spirit, restful spirits, Spirits that know, ultimately, what all this is for. We have been promised that we can live with the hope of this future now. This is the promise for us. That while we wait in the in-between, we can set our eyes, we can set our sights on something perfect and better. Hebrews 6.18 says this, and now we have run into his heart to hide ourselves in his faithfulness. This is where we find his strength and comfort. For he empowers us to seize what has already been established ahead of time, an unshakable hope. We have this certain hope, like a strong, unbreakable anchor, holding our souls to God himself. Our anchor of hope is fastened to the mercy seat in the heavenly realm, beyond the sacred threshold, and where Jesus, our forerunner, has gone before us, he is now and forever our royal priest. Oh, that's good. We're going to come back to that. Let's just look at that first half. 
We have run into his heart to hide ourselves in his faithfulness. This is where we find strength and comfort, for he empowers us to seize what has already been established. This is happening, guys. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more brokenness. And we get to seize it right now. We get to hold on to that hope right now. Have you ever met a person, like another believer, who just has some sort of like, I don't know if I'm going to describe this right, some sort of just restfulness about them? They just have this knowing, like everything's going to be okay. And it's not some sort of shallow thing, like just hang in there, kitten on a tree branch, right? But it's like, it's, you know what I'm saying? It's like something deeper. It's just a restfulness. They may speak up. They may take action. They won't sit back idly when something needs to change or something needs to be done. But there's a restfulness to their spirit that says, I know where this is all going. I'm not worried. I knew someone like that when we lived in New York. And she was just this, this force of nature of calmness. I don't even know how to... Like, I remember I was, you know, young in my 20s, and I would get frustrated at things, and I would, she was kind of a mentor of mine, and I would go to her and be like, oh, like, why are people acting like this, and why are people doing this, and we got to, like, get Jesus in the center, and we got to do all this stuff, and she was just like, yeah, we should. Let's talk about why this bothers you so much. You know what I mean? Like, why, I, I understand that you want something more, but she just was so set. She was so settled in who Jesus was, that, like, she was seemed unflappable. She mourned with those who mourned. She celebrated with those who celebrated. But there was just a steadiness to her faith that I was like, oh man, I want that. What is that? And now I know her eyes were set on a future that had not come. They were set on a future that had not come. Do you know why it's so hard for us when we experience pain and brokenness and injustice? Because the image of God on us calls for something better. Okay? So when we want to kick and scream and say, this isn't right, things are not right, this shouldn't be happening, this is not okay, I'm upset about this, I don't think this is God's will, whatever, that's pretty natural. We have the image of a just, good, perfect God on us. There should be something in us that goes, wait, this can't be. This isn't right. <clears throat> Have you ever heard a kid just like, this isn't fair, right? And I think we get so annoyed sometimes. Like, what do we say when kids say life isn't fair? Anybody? Or it's not fair. We say life isn't fair. I gave it away. Oops. I'm terrible at quizzes, guys. Just listen closely. I've already given you the answers. Oops. Okay, so we tell them, well, life isn't fair. You get used to it now. Life isn't fair. But isn't there something really beautiful in a kid being like, uh, no, that's not fair. We so easily just accept that, yeah, life isn't fair, man. When a child is reminding us, it should not be this way. It shouldn't be this way. This is terrible. Sometimes we need to listen to that and go, yeah, it should not be this way. Sometimes it's because they didn't get as many pancakes. I get it, you know? Sometimes it's about, but there's this need for justice. 
that I think we can look at the heart of that and go, man, we could use that a little more, you know? That's something that we could hold on to a little more as we get older. It shouldn't be like this. So what should it be like? How do we move with the waves but keep fixed on the hope of what's to come? How do we get there? How do we find that place? See, I think when we come face to face with the imperfection in the world and the, thing, in the, world and the things that fall short of this, this heavenly, beautiful, glory perfection that will one day be ours, that we will see, I think we fall into two kind of different camps specifically as believers. I think it speaks to a more human condition, but I'll speak to believers for now. There's this kind of reactive living. It says, I have to fix all the brokenness around me. It's this kind of whack-a-mole way of thinking. You know that whack-a-mole thing where it's like, anybody? Carnival? Playing the drums, maybe? (laughs) I don't know what I was doing. That was weird. But you know what I'm saying? thing pops up and you got to hit it. That's what reactive living is, right? Something's wrong. Let me just, okay, somebody said something. Nope, that's not okay. And oh, I got to make sure that this is okay. And I got to make sure that my kids are this. Because there's something in us, right? That's like, no, things should be better. Things should be just. Things should be good. There shouldn't be pain. And yet we just go around. Just, no, get out of here. No, I don't like that. I don't like that. We have to stop. Speaking as somebody who is like that sometimes, and I'm in both of these camps, so I just was like, pot calling the kettle, you know what I'm saying? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Have you ever tried to live like that? Like, this isn't okay, and this isn't okay, and this is I have to fix it all right now. I got to do something. I got to post something. I got to argue with somebody. I got to go do a thing. I got to run after something. And it's not built on a, oh yeah, let's, let's do something to make it right. It's this like, I have to fix it. It's all on me. This way of living is easily offended. It's anxious. It's perfectionistic. It's angry. It's self-righteous. It's self-hating. Recognize any of those? I think in this reactive living camp, sometimes, too, we can get apathetic. Well, I can't fix it, so I'm just going to go along with it, or I'm just going to ignore it. That's a reaction, too. Everything's, everything's bad. Nothing is working out. Nothing is good. So I'm just, I'm out. I'm tapping out. I'm out of here. Been there, too. It's still a reaction to what is not what it should be. It's this reaction to what is. And it requires this vigilance to solve problems that we were never asked to solve. Reactive living says, my hope ultimately is in me. We may not say it. We may say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus has got it. But at the end of the day, when we are living like this, we are saying, my hope is in me. Now we have another option. I like to call it anchored living. It's this idea that Jesus 
will fix the brokenness around me. It is kind and steady. It's honest, which can be hard, but it's authentic. It's secure and curious. It's compassionate. It's forgiving. Have you ever felt that when you feel wronged or something is wrong, but something in you just goes, I don't know, I, I, maybe there's more to this story. Maybe I should ask questions, or maybe I can be compassionate in this situation. That is the anchor of Jesus in us that hopes for something better that will be coming. Anchored living says, my hope is in Jesus, not myself. Let's look at the last half of that Hebrews 6. We have this certain hope, like a strong, unbreakable anchor, holding our souls to God himself. Not being tossed by the waves, not reacting to anything we see and trying to go back and forth and just make anything right that we can try to make right. Our anchor of hope is fastened to the mercy seat. This is the throne of God. Our anchor of hope is fastened to the throne of God in the heavenly realm beyond the sacred threshold. The idea here, and I, got, I love this quote, so I'm not, gonna re, I'm not going to reword it. It says, um, I got from a commentary, the idea here is that the hope of the Christian enters into heaven itself and takes hold on the throne of God. It is made firm by being fashioned there. It's not the hope of riches or honors or pleasures in this life, for such a hope would, keep the soul, would not keep the soul steady. It's the hope of immortal blessedness and purity in the world beyond. What would it look like to have a hope that enters into heaven itself and says, that's where I'm anchored. That is where I live. The world can be going crazy around me. I can be so angry with some people around me. I can be struggling. I cannot understand why people don't understand my point of view. But at the end of the day, are we anchored to what we think what we know, what we experience, or are we anchored to the heavenly throne of God that we will see one day? Where are we connected? Now, I just want you to hear me. I am not saying that, an that anchored living requires inaction, okay? We are not robots. God has never asked us to be that. Nothing bothers me. Super chill. This is not what I'm saying, right? Just let it roll off your back. I know Jesus is coming, so I literally don't care, right? This, that's kind of more in the too heavenly-minded camp, right? What I am saying is that when we act, when we speak, when it's time to stand up, we'll know we are anchored to the throne of God and the hope that is to come. And I'll tell you what, guys, we say a lot less. We do a lot less when we are anchored there. We, we're not reacting anymore. We're keeping our hope where it needs to be. Does that make sense? 
We are a people who've been called to, to wait on the Lord, to anchor ourselves to him. We're people who pray first. Maybe that prayer does lead to action, but we start there. We trust in what we cannot see. We stay anchored to the one true thing that will never change. This is not the end, and everything will be made new. That's good news. I just, isn't that so exciting? Do you ever think about that? Like, there will be a day. No tears. Maybe for me, because I cry when I'm happy. Sometimes I'm like, Jesus, I would also take no tears, because it is distracting. He's probably not going to give it to me. He's probably going to be like, no, you're going to cry more here. It's going to be great. I'm going to have, uh, yeah, I'm going to have John come up to play a little bit for us. And I just want to practice something with you. I just want to get really practical, a way to kind of move forward in this. Because thinking about the kingdom that is to come and everything being unbroken and beautiful and pain-free feels wonderful, but also very ambiguous. Like, how, do, how can I even, even imagine that? Guys, just the collective suffering and pain that we've experienced just in this room is wild. I only know, like, maybe half of our stories well. It's wild. The pain we've endured, the brokenness we have seen, the injustice we've sat by and watched, it's terrible. So it's hard to think of this like one day, right? But I think a really practical way we can understand if we're like anchored in that hope or if we're just living reactive, doing this reacted living type of thing, is to really pay attention to how we're responding to things when they come. So I just want to encourage you, if you want to like sit on the floor, that's fine, or kneel on the floor, I would say at least like put your feet just on the floor, kind of as a visual, physical anchor, okay? Just feet on the floor, and I want you to, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think of an area in your life where you tend to be reactive. Is it with a certain person? Is it in a certain situation or a job? Remember, reactive living looks like, like really deep anger, offense, anxiety. perfectionism, self-righteousness, anything, comparison. Think of a place in your life where these feelings, these realities kind of show up in us. Maybe it's worries about stability or your future. Maybe it's a pain or sickness that you've been enduring and you get angry and anxious about it. Maybe it's a time you've been wronged or an injustice that happened to you or someone you love. Maybe it's just an injustice you see around you in the world. Something that sets you off. Maybe you've got multiple things. Just hold, you can hold a couple if you want to, but at least one. I'm sure we've all got at least one. I've got about 20. And I want you to take a deep breath. 
And I want you to picture that specific situation dissolving into something beautiful and perfect. Perfect and complete healing. What would that look like? A wonderfully renewed relationship where there's only been rockiness and heartache. Imagine your anger dissipating away for someone. Imagine someone coming to you and asking for forgiveness. Imagine a world where these things just never even were an issue. Imagine a world where you could get up in the morning and feel no pain. Imagine a world where the people who were supposed to love you never walked away from you. Imagine a world where you have never been forgotten, never lonely, never unseen. Love, joy, kindness available. Everyone cared for, walking with Jesus. God is close and beautiful and mighty and tender. Picture that, guys. God being close. full of beauty and might and holiness, but so tender towards you. This is what we hope for. This is what we pray for. Do you feel that peace? What do you feel when you think about those things? Excitement, joy, impatience? Disbelief, maybe? How could it ever be so wonderful? I want you to hold that in your mind's eye. What a gift God's given us in the ability to imagine. He knew that we would be longing for a world that is not yet here. Hold it in your imagination. Hold that hope. And if you're willing, I want to pray a blessing over you. If you'll put out your hands as a symbol that you want to accept this. I just want to play a blessing over us that we would be anchored in what is to come, the perfection that God has set aside for us. And that we would live anchored in Jesus until we get there, until that day comes. God, anchor my soul in this place. Anchor my mind in what will be as I live and work in the midst of what is. Keep my feet steady and my heart certain when the waves come, knowing that you are God above all forever, knowing that this is not the end. I believe I will see peace. I believe I will see justice. I believe I will see mercy an unfettered joy. I believe I will see a new heaven and a new earth. I believe I will see you face to face. Until then, help me live in the reality that is yet to come and live with confidence in this hope. 
And God, I just pray that you would anoint us as a body with purpose to bring your kingdom on earth now with our eyes fixed on you and your kingdom that will be fulfilled. Even when we forget this day, we forget this sermon, we forget these scriptures, God, I pray that there would be an anchor from this moment, a boundary line set that we could not even try to let go of, that is there for us when we need it. Anchor us, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask us to stand. We're just going to sing this verse of Build My Life that we sang before um, at the end of worship. And just let this be a seal on what we believe God is bringing to us and what he wants us to experience right now before that perfection comes. Let's sing. And I will build my life upon your throne. It is firm foundation. God, thank you for the work that you're doing right now in us. 
God, I believe that when we say yes to these things, you are doing unseen stuff. You are doing things that we do not see and cannot imagine in our souls. Thank you for anchoring us in the way that we've asked, and I pray that we would see the fruit of that as we go forward. Let us be a people who live in the here and now and are present and loving and kind, but also have our sights set on what will be. Thank you that this is not the end of the story. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you want to stay for a little bit, John's going to keep playing. Um, if you want some prayer, some extra, just like, man, I just really need freedom from this thing, and I need help, we would love to pray for you. Or if you would like specifically, I felt like God wanted me to give an opportunity. If you want an impartation of joy or hope or something that you're just feeling, I just need something from, so I need somebody to pray that I have a bursting of joy or hope in a certain situation or just in general. Come up and we'd love to pray for you. Um, besides that, we'll see you Friday for the worship and prayer night. You guys have a good week. Love you.